0: Hello. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Simea Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London,
1: and I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington.
0: This episode is about the World Trade Organization, the WTO, as told through the story of its eleventh ministerial meeting. The meeting sounds kind of boring, and on some measures, it really was. There were a lot of statements, uh, a lot of clapping, a lot of delegates, but there were no new trade deals. And at the end, the Director General said it was disappointing.
1: In this episode, we're going to try to explain why ministerials are so difficult, bringing in history from earlier conferences. We're going to try to explain why, to some people, this conference was in fact a great success.
0: I was at the meeting, so I will try to infuse the episode of my real life experiences. And we're also going to be drawing really heavily from one of the best books on trade I have ever read. It's by Paul Bluestein. It's called Misadventures of the Most Favored Nations. And we'll hear from Paul too. Chad, start us off. What is the point of ministerial?
1: So WTO ministerial meetings are a chance for trade ministers from all 164 member countries to get together. In America, we have the US Trade Representative, but everywhere else they're called trade ministers. The ministers agree to the WTO's work program for the next two years. There's a couple of smaller deals that are temporary and that have to be renewed each time, so they do that. Sometimes they actually announce major new deals that the technical negotiators have been working on behind the scenes that finally get done. And at the end, they'll try to agree, all 164 of them, on a joint statement.
0: Picture the scene. Imagine thousands of people, ministers, advisors, NGOs, journalists, all trying to use the same Wi-Fi system at once. It's intense. It's also really intense for ministers. I had about one who was packing in meetings at 15-minute intervals. It's it's pretty cost-effective if you want to meet as many other trade ministers as you can. And when the negotiations really get going, talks can go on all night. There's this tale of Pascal Lamy, who was the director general of the WTO in 2005. And in a Hong Kong meeting, he got seven hours of sleep in five days. The other thing to understand is that security for these events is really tight. The government shut down the whole area around the conference. There were armed police everywhere.
1: Partly the tight security was something to do with the Argentine government. They blocked some non-governmental organizations from actually coming into the country. Clearly not cool. But this is also partly a hangover from the Seattle Ministerial Conference in 1999 when tens of thousands of protesters turned up at that meeting. These talks later came to be
2: known as the Battle in Seattle. Here's Paul to explain what happened. They very cleverly engaged in tactics like uh, blocking intersections, chaining themselves to objects. Uh, They uh, managed to pretty much shut the meeting down because the police began resorting to tear gas and billy clubs to clear the streets, and that caused a lot of violence. So... People who had come to represent their countries at the WTO meeting couldn't even get to the convention center where the meetings were supposed to be held.
0: Once they did get into the center, the meeting was a flop. Members couldn't agree on what the agenda should be for the next couple of years. And some say that the protesters actually caused the failure. Others say no, it was the inflexible negotiators. Here's Paul's take.
2: As I looked into this, the more I realized that it was it was wrong to completely dismiss the impact that the protests had. They really, really did have a big impact. And the reason for that is what happened on the fourth and final day. On that day, the countries were very divided, uh, but there was a, a pretty substantial group who thought that with just a few more hours, uh, and this often happens at WTO meetings, they often have to go past their, their self-imposed deadline, Just a few more hours, they could reach agreement. But when they went to the mayor of Seattle and asked for permission to stay in the convention center, he said, absolutely not. Now, he was at that point under tremendous criticism, rightly so, for the mishandling of the protests. So uh, the meetings had to break up. Uh, He told them, in fact, he would pull the police protection uh, if they didn't uh, evacuate the uh, convention center on time.
0: We can't prove that it's of the talks, but... Once the delegates scuppered, there was no hope of getting a deal. In Buenos Aires, the locals seemed less interested in protesting the WTO than their own government. Reportedly, there was a protest, around two and a half thousand people, but there were tens or hundreds of thousands of Argentines gathered the next day for a protest against their government. That was altogether more dramatic. In the conference center, from what I saw, it was pretty peaceful.
1: So there is a connection between these protesters and the meeting. Sometimes they're protesting the whole system, It really does reflect the fact that when these ministers get together, they do have a chance to rewrite the global rule book to change the rules of the entire system.
0: This time in Buenos Aires, expectations were really low. No one was expecting a major rewrite of the global rules. One of the reasons they thought that is that mostly ministers arrive at these meetings with lots of the work already done for them. There might be a text with people disagreeing on wording. But this time, the delegates were just really, really far apart. There really wasn't the same level of agreement that you would expect given past ministerials where they did actually make progress.
1: One deal they were hoping to agree to was on fishing subsidies. Now, in economics speak, the basic problem is the simple tragedy of the commons. The story is individuals don't take into account the effect that their fishing has on the overall stock of fish, and so they fish too much. And that happens at the country level. But at the international level, it's even more complicated. And that's because these fish swim across these national borders out there in the oceans. So me, as an American, I overfish in international waters of the Pacific Ocean, waters that aren't really owned by anybody. And that causes problems for people seeking to fish sustainably all over the world. Addressing the overfishing problem has a lot of similarities with trying to deal with problems like climate change. Carbon emissions in the United States or China affects climate change everywhere. A second problem here, though, is that governments also subsidize fishing a lot. They do it through the fuel used on boats, but also by paying for ports and harbors. And these aren't the good kinds of subsidies either. These are subsidies that expand the capacity and incentivize overfishing. China and Japan are some of the biggest subsidizers, but Europe and other countries do the same thing as well.
0: It's worth pointing out that some of the poorest people in the world are affected by this overfishing. If there are no fish in the sea, then that's their source of income gone. And that is why in September of 2015, heads of government at the United Nations all agreed as one of the sustainable development goals to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas and marine resources. In that, they included a specific pledge to prohibit subsidies that contribute to overfishing, and also they promised to eliminate subsidies that contribute to illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing. Right, so, illegal fishing—you'd have thought that would be easy to to stamp out, or to agree that you wouldn't subsidize it. So two things are important here. First, they set a date to get it done. They have a deadline of 2020. But second, they explicitly call for the WTO to organize it. So this is something for them to do because these subsidies, they can distort trade. This does fall theoretically within the WTO's remit.
1: So the WTO has been seriously trying to do something about this for years, dating back at least to 2001. But the economics of this are not going to be easy for them to tackle. Realistically, the WTO has never been used to deal with a global commons problem before. The Paris Climate Accord was not a WTO agreement. And we know from experience with aircraft subsidies and agricultural subsidies that reigning in subsidies is really, really hard. So while I agree something needs to be done, a lot is being asked of the WTO here.
0: Okay, so back to Buenos Aires and the ministerials. The New Zealanders were pushing this really, really hard. The EU was being pretty proactive as well. The meeting started on Sunday night. By Tuesday afternoon, the meeting ends on the Wednesday. By Tuesday afternoon, they still had five different options on the table. The strictest one wasn't strict enough for some members. They were worried about setting a precedent of being too soft. And the most flexible one just wasn't flexible enough. They weren't being given enough leeway to adjust to these new rules. As soon as we arrived, it was pretty much obvious that a more general agreement on curbing fishing subsidies wasn't going to happen. But people still held out hope that they might be able to get rid of these illegal fishing subsidies. But by Tuesday evening on the second full day, they'd also pretty much given up on that. It really doesn't sound like they ever got close.
1: But if these things are illegal, you might ask why these politicians failed to agree to something they'd already agreed to. What's wrong with them?
0: Well, so there's disagreement. On this area, so so enforcement is expensive. If you suddenly tell developing countries you must not uh, subsidise these things or you'll face a legal challenge, then you know they they'll claim that they need time, they need money to actually check whether this fishing is going on. There was also some disagreement over the definition of illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing, and so they were worried that maybe some legit fishing could get caught in the net of the illegal fishing, but. Stepping back from the weeds of that disagreement, there are there are just much bigger structural problems at the WTO. So to agree anything, you need all 164 members to say yes, you need everyone to agree. In principle, that's to stop the big countries bullying the small ones. You know, the small ones have to agree too. But it also gives huge power to any member that wants to hold everything up. Every single ministerial This has gone on. Someone has taken an agreement hostage to try and squeeze out from the other members something that they want. Here's Paul talking about what happened in the meeting in 2001 when a group of ex-European colonies made a request right towards the end.
2: And what was it that they wanted? Well, they wanted to keep duty-free access that they had for their products in Europe. Their former colonial masters. They've been given this, but it technically violated WTO rules, so they needed the meeting to approve a waiver of those rules. They were afraid they were going to lose it, and uh, they said, if we don't get this, we are going to block the consensus, and this meeting is going to fail. Now, the other countries were furious about this, as you can imagine, the bigger ones who were trying to work out something deal with much bigger problems, and also the developing countries that competed with those uh, former European colonies uh, who would, their products would be at a disadvantage if uh, if they couldn't get the same duty-free access.
0: People do this hostage-taking because it can work. In 2001, the rest of the world caved. The EU was given an exception to their WTO rules, and they gave lower tariffs to these ex-colonies. In the Bali ministerial in 2013, members were on the brink of agreeing to something called the Trade Facilitation Agreement, which was the first big trade deal that they'd agreed since 1995, And the Cubans stuck their hands up and said, hey, we want an American embargo on our exports to be lifted. This was just as the Obama administration was changing its policy. And so eventually Cuba was persuaded to drop its demand. The bigger the deal, the more countries can squeeze. The Indians are known to be hostage takers. And there's this one policy, this one deal that they really, really want, that they have taken several other deals hostage over and it relates to public stockholdings. Chad, what is this?
1: Well, this has something to do with food security, so let's start with that. So food security is a legitimate policy concern. So imagine a domestic food shortage that's caused by a natural disaster, so floods or wildfires or drought. In response, governments impose trade barriers. But if one country bans exports because of a food shortage, that spills over to other countries, making them feel vulnerable to food shortages themselves. The problem is if everybody does this, there's a coordination problem. Now, economists would say, hey, let's just impose rules preventing these sorts of trade barriers. That's why you need to have a trade deal in the first place. The problem is we don't have a trade deal preventing these kinds of export barriers. So instead, governments intervene. Turning to India specifically, food security is definitely a problem. India has had food shortages in the past. In 2010, they had a shortage of onions, and this is a major staple of the Indian diet, and they imposed an export ban. But their bigger solution to this problem is to come up with this public stockholding program. And this program buys crops from their farmers at a guaranteed price and redistributes the food to the poor for very, very cheap. But it's also a bit of political cover. The underlying story of Indian agriculture is not that different from the rest of the world. So while India has lots and lots of small and poor farmers, like all countries, it is also worried about protecting them from global competition. So India's public stockholding program is part food security, part income support for its farmers part poverty alleviation, and part protection from foreign competition.
0: There are some WTO rules here. There are limits on government subsidies. Because the price that the Indian government pays its farmers is above the market price, it is technically then a government subsidy. And if the subsidy payments become too big, that breaks the rules. That breaks this trade deal that they've already agreed to under the WTO. I should say at this point that the Indians say that the, the technical details of how these subsidies are calculated overstates the amount of the subsidies in an, in an unfair way. So actually, their subsidies are lower than will be calculated under the official formula.
1: But if the big question is, if this is really about food security and poverty alleviation, why should foreigners care? Well, one reason is because India is such a big market. Foreigners would actually like to be able to export their onions to India. But they also care because sometimes in these public stockholding programs, if there's a really good harvest and there's way too much food for India to consume itself, well, then governments have an incentive to dump that extra food out there onto world markets. And that depresses prices. Europeans, the United States, lots of countries have done this historically, and they don't want India to be able to do it now.
0: Okay, so that's the economics. And how does this interact with trade negotiations? The last time the Indians tried to hold a deal hostage over this public stockholdings issue was back in 2014. So every minister had already agreed to this thing called the Trade Facilitation Agreement, which is this everyone wins trade deal where you cut red tape and eliminate paperwork and that sort of thing. And the Indians said hey, you think you have this trade deal agreed, but actually you don't because we're going to hold it up because we want a better deal on public stock holdings. And so the Americans, they wanted to save this deal so much that they'd worked so hard to get through that they said, fine, fine. And so essentially what, what the Indians got was this situation where they had this strange temporary solution that would never run out. So on some agricultural products, other countries agreed not to sue India if it went over its subsidy limits. There was a deadline on paper to get a permanent solution for this and and to get something that everyone was happier with, and that deadline was in theory 2017, so this latest ministerial. But if they didn't meet that deadline, then that temporary solution would persist.
1: And at this ministerial, the Indians arrived with this as their number one priority. So here's Suresh Prabhu, India's Minister for Commerce and Industry at the opening plenary.
2: One such issue is a permanent solution for public stockholding for food security purposes. This is a matter of survival for 800 million hungry and undernourished people of the world. A successful resolution of this issue would fulfill our collective commitment to the global community. In this context, we cannot envisage Any negotiated outcome at MC-11, which does not include a permanent solution.
1: Long before this came along, the Americans have been fighting with the Europeans over getting them to remove their agricultural subsidies. And now the Indians are coming along, and again, with the Chinese really hiding behind them on this issue, asking to increase their subsidies. The Americans are saying no. Now, the U.S. is no saint. It gives large subsidies to its farmers, but this is really the graveyard of trade agreements.
0: This time, the short version of the story is that the Indians did not get their way. Last time they took a hostage, the US administration really wanted to save this other deal. This time they weren't that fussed. When faced with the Indians making their demands, the US said, we will only negotiate a permanent solution as part of a much bigger package. If we want market access if you want this, this agreement on subsidies. The Indians got really angry, they threw all the toys out of the pram, and the casualty was the fishing agreement. They also actually almost scuppered a couple of other things. Uh, So those deals we mentioned at the beginning, that get renewed every time. One was this agreement not to tax digital flows relating to e-commerce. The Indians threatened not to approve that. The Americans said, fine, we'll scrap the agreement not to sue you for some kinds of intellectual property violations. And there was some threat maybe that India with its generic drugs could be subject to, to some of those legal challenges. Once the Indians realised that it would be not good to get sued for that drugs issue, they, they said, "Ah, oh, you know what, maybe, this, maybe we can approve this, this e-commerce thing. I think it was on Wednesday morning, everyone thought that these two things were dead and then they miraculously came back to life. But Fish still didn't get agreed.
2: We cannot envisage any negotiated outcome at MC-11 which does not include a permanent solution. All
1: of this is to say that reaching an agreement is really, really hard. Given this hostage-taking, countries tying one thing to some other thing, it used to be the case that power was much more concentrated among the big economic blocs who were more aligned, the Americans and the Europeans, for example. But now you've got India, China, Brazil, lots of other countries involved. The geopolitics are much, much more complicated. But also it's because when the package is bigger, then there are more ways to pay off potentially awkward members and make everything a win-win. Here, when it's just talking about smaller deals, this is much more difficult.
0: If these issues sound quite narrow, fishing subsidies, individual public stock holding programs, it's because they are. There's a much bigger agenda that countries have wanted to move forward. It's called the Doha Development Agenda. That was the big, big trade deal that was supposed to be this grand package of cutting lots and lots of trade barriers. That was launched in 2001, but similar problems to the ones we've mentioned have held it up. Getting consensus is just really, really difficult. And that difficulty of agreeing on anything is what people mean when they say that the negotiating arm of the WTO is broken. And in the long run, that's really, really dangerous for the system. In some areas, you really need new rules. If you can't negotiate in areas to to get better rules when everyone agrees that the rulings are wrong or everyone agrees that the rulebook just doesn't exist, then it could lead countries just to sort of start ignoring the whole institution altogether.
1: So alongside this hostage-taking on an individual basis, you also have some countries that have basically been taking the entire agenda hostage. So the Doha development agenda launched in 2001 was supposed to be a development round. And poorer countries interpreted that as meaning they were going to be given additional access to rich country markets. Rich countries were going to cut their trade barriers more in agriculture and products that they wanted in exchange for nothing. They wouldn't have to give up anything in return. But this never really got anywhere. And you can see why. Rich countries just had no incentive to push for it. And at the same time, as new issues came along, the richer members wanted the WTO to be the place to negotiate new rules on things like e-commerce, how to help out small and medium-sized enterprise get more involved in trade. But some countries are saying no, that you can't negotiate anything new until you've done what you promised originally, which is to negotiate this Doha development agenda.
0: Here's Cecilia Malmstrom, the European Trade Commissioner, talking about the problem in her opening statement. The problems are many, but essentially they boil down to one fundamental issue, an inability to discuss issues of concerns to members and to agree on a suitable way forward. And this has manifested itself with procedural blockages on topics which are indisputably critical for today's global trade, and a future discussion regarding the existence of a a mandate or not. This problem is systemic, and it's beginning to jeopardise the whole organisation. We have so much unfinished business that must be addressed. But at the same time, we cannot close our eyes to the fact that there are issues in the broader trade world that needs to be discussed, such as e-commerce, services, concerns of our small and medium-sized enterprises.
1: The point is, there's a lot of work to be done here. And the fact is, this hasn't been happening at all under the WTO. And for countries like the United States and the Europeans, this has been really frustrating. It's partly why they've been looking for alternative deals to negotiate these new rules. Regional deals like the TPP or the TTIP negotiations between the US and Europe.
0: It's also led to a different kind of trade agreement called a plurilateral. So this has a plurality of countries, so not everyone. But the idea is that you get a group together that's big enough, you agree rules between each other, and then you apply them on the basis that everyone can benefit from them. So still the same principle of the World Trade Organization for most favored nations, everyone gets the same treatment it neutralizes the holdup problem no longer can one country say no i'm screwing everything up because you don't need everyone to agree you just need enough
1: countries to agree and this is an old approach to the problem dating back to the 1970s they had lots of deals then that were these plurilaterals more recently this even predates president trump the information technology agreement involved a smaller group of countries The major technology exporting countries, they all agreed to cut their tariffs on over a trillion dollars worth of exports all over the same sets of products. But they also agreed not just to extend these tariff cuts toward each other, but to all the other WTO members as well. Now, there are some drawbacks to doing this kind of an approach. First, a plurilateral isn't going to work if it doesn't cover all of the main countries that are the source of the underlying problem. So imagine a plurilateral agreement on fishing without China. So for one of these plurilateral agreements that involves just cutting tariffs, it is easier, but it's not always feasible because you do have to extend these tariff cuts to everybody. And some countries out there want a free ride. So what you have to do is you have to get a critical mass of these countries together in the first place.
0: There's an environmental goods agreement, which is one attempt at a plurilateral. And the Chinese said, if you want us on board, then you have to cut your tariffs on bicycles. The Europeans said no, and you just didn't have enough big countries to get a deal.
1: But the final problem with these plurilaterals is the ones that involve lots of new rules. It's not always easy to write rules in a way that both constrain the behavior of the countries that you're really worried about, but also don't end up discriminating against the other countries that are being left out of the deal. So
0: at this latest ministerial meeting, they didn't agree anything new on fish or on public stock holdings, but... On the final day of the conference, there was this statement that came out from 71 countries who agreed to start work to negotiate rules relating to e-commerce. Agricultural subsidies might be stuck for now, but they are trying to move forward to tackle rulemaking regarding the digital economy. For me, the really interesting thing was the way in which the Trump administration promoted this development. I think the, the shadow or the cloud hanging over this whole conference was everyone worrying about the American retreat from the World Trade Organization. You know, Getting an agreement is hard enough without one of the main sponsors of this institution questioning its value or not really engaging in getting new deals. But the Trump administration did sign up to this e-commerce initiative. They're going to try this plurilateral. And... In the statement, they said it was a significant milestone. They said that initiatives like this among like-minded countries offer a positive way forward for the WTO in future. That doesn't really sound to me like language of someone who sees no value in the institution. There was also a joint statement released the Trump administration uh, along with the EU and Japan saying that they would cooperate on overcapacity and forced technology transfer. And they, and they mentioned the WTO as a forum to deal with those issues. So there the target was clearly China, although it wasn't explicitly mentioned. And and so, you know, for, for me, one of the takeaways was maybe we're, we're turning a corner. Maybe this is the sign of the Trump administration taking a friendlier approach to the WTO and trying to change you know, the world trading system from within.
1: Maybe. And I hope so, too. If so, that would be good. But stepping back, there's no easy way out of these structural problems. The protests, the hostage taking, the difficulty in securing agreement, all due to these deep global divisions. There's a still this lingering sense that the existing rules favor the rich countries. And there's also philosophical differences out there about what countries mean by development and the role of developing countries in the WTO. WTO members like the US and the Europeans they think the rules should apply to everyone. The poorer countries think that they should have exceptions. Countries like India argue that they should be allowed to do what the US and the Europeans have been doing for decades on things like subsidies and agriculture. But for countries like India and especially China, is this right? Yes, these countries have low GDP per person and tens of millions of people still living in poverty. But because they're so large and their policies so easily spill over to affect what's going on in the rest of the world, there's fundamental disagreement over whether countries of this size really warrant special treatment, or whether because they're so big, they should still have to stick by the rules that also apply to the rich countries. And that difference isn't easily resolved with plurilaterals, and is another source of rot.
0: Okay, so I'm a glass half full kind of person, and this conference was not as disappointing as some people have made out. There were steps forward, even on fish, they say that they made some progress towards getting an agreement in the future it wasn't a complete failure and they did manage to renew those things that get renewed every single time but there are still really really deep problems in the global trading system that need to be resolved and every two years we are going to be reminded of that in these ministerial meetings so, some acknowledgements. Thank you so much to Paul Bluestein, whose great book, Misadventures of the Most Favored Nations, describes so many of the WTO ministerials. Before reading the book, I really didn't think that one could write a page turner about trade, but he managed it. I really, really would recommend it. Great stocking for, for trade geeks out there.
1: And I would as well. I'd also like to thank the behind the scenes team at the Peterson Institute. They're the ones that have helped make the Trade Talks 2017 season possible. Thanks to Jeremy Tripp, Helen Hillebrand, Melina Cobb, Sydney Ouellette, Daniel Hausch, Eitan Urkowitz, and Steve Wiseman. And that's all from Trade Talks. So we'll be back in January. As always, please, please, if you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends about it. Under the mistletoe, as you're waiting for the ball to drop or watching fireworks, make Trade Talks part of your holiday season.
0: And if you have any specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Samea Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one, but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to real life trade talks, you need a podcast episode that is twice as long.
0: Chad, can I can I plug my, my thing?
1: Uh, Sure. Your thing. Go ahead and plug it. So, Sumeya, have you been working on anything else aside from Trade Talks?
0: Funny you ask. Um, So, over the last few months, I've been working on this piece about women in economics and why there are so few of us. Uh, It's on economist.com. I've also tweeted it out. So, so search for women economics at economist.com and you'll find it. Uh, Please read it.